episode 23, Strategies for Optimal Family Life and Getting Out of Your Own Way. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we hear Dr. Caitlin Foss, PhD, Perspective. For doctors who want a thriving practice and abundant home life, listen as your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, goes behind the curtain and interviews doctors and guests about real-world triumph, struggles, practical tips, and entertainment on this episode of A Doctor's Perspective. I've got something special for everybody. Well, the first on the episode 25, episode 25 will be a solo episode. My first one, kind of talking about why I'm in the chiropractic, China, answering questions that other people have had. So if you still have any questions, just let me know. Justin at a doctor's perspective.net is the email. We're also going to have new artwork starting episode 25. But what's exciting is from episode 22 through 26, it's a month worth of spotlight on women. We're gonna have two psychologists, PhDs. We're gonna have a doctor of chiropractor working in one of the most expensive cities in the world. The most expensive actually. And also a wonderful multi-author and social media expert coach from Australia. So stay tuned. Episode 22 through 26. It's gonna be fun. Women's month. Let's go. What's up, everybody? Today we have PhD professor. She is in her tenure track. We talk about how to get out of your own way, how to do it so you can have a side hustle outside of your job, balancing family life with that. We're going to talk about some controversial stuff like women's pay gap, the Bernie Sanders free college, um, time management strategies, and tons of books. No need to worry. It doesn't get too hot and heavy and heated or anything like that. But she is just a a great person. She has a lot to offer. So she specializes in helping busy professionals find those balances. So let's see what we can learn from her today. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the show. Today, we have a psychology professor and coach specialized in helping busy professionals and graduate students find work-life balance with productivity and career tips. Her name is Dr. Caitlin Foss. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Justin. Well, I am curious. What is sort of your background? Where'd you go to school? Because you are a doctor and you're a a psychologist. So give us the the lowdown on you. Yes, absolutely. Um, So for the longest time, since coming home day one in kindergarten, I told my parents I want to be a teacher. And so I pursued that. Uh, You know, teachers made the biggest difference in my life. And I always wanted to be a teacher. So I went to college, undergraduate uh, at Kent State University in Ohio, and I was going to be a teacher, but then I discovered psychology. I didn't know psychology existed until my freshman year of college. So then I learned about research and that people could do research about families and studying the mind. And I was so excited about that. So as I learned more about it, I realized I also wanted to do research. And so that put me on the path to uh, pursue my PhD. And so straight out of my undergraduate degree, I went to a master's to PhD program at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. So I spent five years there and uh, completed my degree, both master's and PhD in human development. And that uh, I went onto the job market my last year as I was finishing my dissertation. And I ended up uh, landing a tenure track position at a small university in Maryland. And it's uh, Mount St. Mary's University. We just have 1,500 students, mostly undergraduates. And so I just finished my fourth year, or I'm finishing my fourth year there. Wow, congratulations. 
Well, I got a couple of comments then because five years, master's, PhD, I thought they're supposed to be shorter. Or is that actually a short amount of time for, for your field? Shorter or longer? Well, I thought if you got a master's, PhD uh, combo, I thought that should be a little bit shorter oh, yeah. in time. Oh, no. Okay. So usually n- not all programs are set up to do both along the way. Uh, oh. So my program uh, was, and it usually takes seven years to complete both. So the average time for a PhD is seven years. And that's if you finish, of course, right? So uh, about 50% of people are finishing a PhD on average. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a fast track. (laughs) Yeah. I had a friend that started and then was debating about like the debt to income ratio and the the surplus. And and she's like, I think, I think I'm done (laughs) with the master's, but And so you have found a tenure job right off the jump. I got to say congratulations. Apparently that is very difficult yeah. to do. Thanks. It, it, I, some things fell into place and it worked out. I I don't think I've met any well, I definitely have met other people who have landed tenure track jobs right out of right out of their PhD. But mm. uh, and there is kind of a trend they're saying right now that actually it's easier to get the position right at, straight out of when you're ABD or all but dissertation, but uh, details they uh a lot of people have to go to postdocs so we're hiring even us being so tiny we're hiring uh somebody for she's starting in the fall and she has spent two years at a postdoc program post-graduation so it was kind of sometimes some days i feel like i snuck in <laughs> yeah what's your uh, what was your dissertation on yeah i wrote about uh college students and their educational completion and uh, specifically college students who drop out. And so mm. what happens to young adults when they drop out of college? Because it's actually the majority of people end up not finishing their bachelor's degree. And so what does their life satisfaction look like? What does their daily life look like? All of that was part of my dissertation. So it's it's the group that's near and dear to my heart. Would you, I mean, are you allowed to talk about that? Like, what what did you find? Like, they were okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was... Um, Secondary, so I used uh, national secondary data that was actually representative of the United States. Uh-huh. And so another passion of mine are statistics and uh, methodology. So that's a different conversation. But so I got to do a lot of fancy modeling with this group, thousands and thousands of participants, which wow. is unusual for most people's dissertation. But uh, in that, yes, I found that there was a lot of heterogeneity for college students who are dropping out. So the stereotype is Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs, and that was only um, 5% of the group, overall group, that had dropped out of college, right? Yeah, and good then luck being the was, next of those. Right. And although that's the dream, right, of like, I can drop out of college, Steve Jobs dropped out of college. Uh, so, but there was this group in the middle, kind of three distinct groups that were interesting and uh, had a lot of great things going for them. And actually, I mean, obviously, some of them were making more income than their uh, bachelor's degree peers. And so examining those differences too, especially as higher education prices climb in the United States, what are we doing with that um, debt to student ratio? What does that look like for long-term goals? So all of that's very exciting to me. <laughs> oh man, that's pretty wild. Statistically speaking, you're not going to be the next Bill Gates. So maybe finish college. That's what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, people and I teach college students every day, right? So I sometimes they ask me what my dissertation is about. And I'm like, it was about students dropping out, but you need to stay in school. So people who are in school, uh, 
staying there is usually the best way to go to finish a degree they've already started. Uh, but it's the group that drops out and maybe doesn't know the consequences. And I feel it's really important that we help people know what they're getting into before they get into it. Because, I mean, one of the worst situations, that, or so to speak, one mm. of the worst things that can happen is walking away from a degree that you invested $50,000 in, and now you don't even have that degree. And it was more, a lot of these young people are saying, I wish somebody had told me, right, that I wasn't going to do this. But in the United States, we live in such a college for all, just go to college and you'll figure it out. And that mentality is hurting a lot of our uh, uh, young people who might have pursued other paths if they had known they were possible. I would think that um, a bachelor's degree is almost like a high school diploma. It's, it's, it seems like it's becoming so easy to, not easy to get because you still have to complete, but there's so many of them. It, it kind of dulls the market down, in my opinion. But Yeah, well, and that's so... Part of it is that, I oh, sorry, between 25 and 35-year-olds, only 30% of them have a bachelor's degree in the U.S. right now. So oh. it seems like it to people like you and me and other busy professionals, but actually it's only because we're hanging out with other people who earned their bachelor's degree. So there's definitely a, a divide there. If we think everybody has it, oh, this isn't a big deal anymore, but the majority of the young people actually still don't. So we're in an insulated bubble and we didn't even, I didn't even realize it. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah, that's where my fun facts. I, I get to take that around to my imaginary <laughs> cocktail parties, right? <laughs> you made a comment. I've said the same thing and a buddy of mine said the same thing. We didn't even know that there were certain professions until you got into school. Like, what's a doctor of osteopath? Psychology. Yeah. My buddy's like, there's other doctors? I thought every doctor was the same. You're like, oh, well, there's way more uh, confusion there. So that's, it's interesting that. Where, where was our guidance counselors, I wonder? Yeah, well, and so they were there, and guidance counselors are so passionate about what they do. Just so many of them are overburdened with, you know, they there's one for 500 students, and how could they possibly give you one-on-one -on -one attention that you might need? So that's where career coaching and a lot of people have come along to help with that. I work with, I have a junior class right now. They're junior undergraduate students, uh, 32 of them, and they're all psychology majors, and we spend, I have the chance to spend time with them on working on their career goals. Uh, and we work through a workbook, and we're talking about it, you know, what's your purpose, what are you passionate about? And for a lot of them, it's the first time that anybody's taken the time to really ask them those questions beyond the usual, like, what job do you want? You better pick one, because that's the path you're going to be on. So we take the time to explore, which I really enjoy. What do you find that's, I mean, a common path or passion that people have, or just, does it just vary so much? Yeah, I well, with psychology majors, their goal a lot of times is that comes down to they really want to help people. And so I do too, right? I was a psychology major as well. And this is true of a lot of our health sciences and uh, these domains where we're wanna, we want to be connected to people and to make a meaningful difference in their lives. And mm -hmm. so for my students, a lot of them see that as a counseling path or a clinical path. Uh, and we kind of help them get there. And mm -hmm. then for a lot of them, it's helping them know that they don't have to get their PhD to be able to make that happen. Because there's that mis there's also that misconception, like I have to go to school for as long as possible to be able to do what I want to do. 
And so I find that it's really exciting to tell them like, hey, did you know that you could actually be done after your bachelor's degree and still be able to help people in the meaningful way that you want to? Uh, and so sometimes that's really exciting. Yeah, no kidding. You mentioned that you do like business coaching in, uh-huh. in a way as well. So let's transition into some of that. Like, what kind of clients do you find? What are some of the questions that they have? Let's try uh-huh. to explore that for a little bit and then we'll just we'll zone in in a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So in the past year, I realized that I wanted to help people beyond my students that I see every day and kind of get those one-on-one connections. So by through coaching, I can work with clients of all different ages and backgrounds. So clients right now, I have 23-year-old to a 60-year-old, and they're working on a variety of different goals. Uh and in general, I've been helping busy professionals and specifically graduate students. So graduate students who are feeling overwhelmed because, of course, I've been there and then they have a lot of things in common of feeling overwhelmed. But what's really cool is that from my 23-year-old to the 60-year-old, they have this very similar issues, right? There's so many, so much overlap that at first on the surface, it might seem like, oh, this is going to be a completely different experience. But I find myself asking them the same questions and they have a lot of the same fears. So feeling that you're not good enough is true for everybody at most stages. Um, that And just enough, right? Like enough of something smart enough, good enough, uh, wealthy enough to do this or to do that. So that's a common struggle. I'd say also on related to that would be feeling like an imposter, right? They're feeling like a fake or a fraud. And so letting them know, kind of working through that of you're not the only one who feels that way. Some days I feel fake and like, I don't know what I'm doing. They're like, what? But you have this degree and you do this. All these, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I say, yeah, but we all go through these moments and there's similar ways to work through it. Uh, And what else? And really the mindset to be able to change next steps of can't like feeling confident enough to do the next thing that they want to do, whether that's work on a budget or it's to get ready to go back to school or it's working on their sleep habits. All of it's like, do you feel confident that you can do that next step? Hmm. So it's a mindset, like a mindset coach versus Here's how you get two commas or $7 million in five years. It's kind of like what's between your ears. No, yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. It's, all, it's part, part of my psychology background, right? So yeah. uh, uh, all kinds of different mindsets. And then career is usually where people start because they're thinking of like, if I change my career, I can change everything. And that's one place to start. But usually we find we need to adjust other things along the way. Uh, and so it varies for everybody. But yeah. You find any big, I, mean, I guess you kind of answered this, but any big mindset flaws that they have? I mean, not feeling good enough, imposters and frauds. Mm-hmm. Are these people like they, they have a nine to five potentially and they're looking to maybe go out on their own and be uh, maybe a consultant, but they're like, I don't have a lot of experience consulting, but I have a lot of experience in what the other person was doing and then having to transition into that? Yeah, so I'd say it varies. Um, Sometimes it's more about, I know I want to be this kind of person rather Mm -hmm. than nine to five and I need to turn this into a different type of job. It's more like, I want to be this kind of person that feels organized at work 
or feels like I could pursue something in my free time, or I could make room for creativity in my life and pick up those hobbies I've always meant to pick up if only I could manage my time better or like if only these things. And so mm -hmm. we kind of work on tackling those and breaking down habits a lot is another piece of that of like what habits are working for you and what habits aren't working. And giving the space to ask people the questions like how much time do we usually ask ourselves, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? Uh, as coaches, we're giving them that space to, to be able to answer those questions outside of a journal and obviously like with the feedback, right? Not just uh, in your journal to yourself. It's kind of like somebody's asking you directly, what do you want to do and how are you going to get there and how can we uh, bridge the foundation to get you from A to B, whether that's money or not, still the same process. Hmm. So I'm curious for an example of someone who's not very time management focused. They're scattered all over the place. What's maybe a tip that they can do to stay focused so they accomplish, create a habit perhaps, or accomplish a goal? Yeah, usually the first step is tracking what you're already doing. So people feel overwhelmed by like, I, I know I can't, that I'm not making the best use of my time from after dinner, from like 7 p.m. to when I go to sleep. And so I say, okay, well, what are you doing during that time? It's usually the first place to start. I'm just like, oh, I mean, I don't, and this is how people will respond. Uh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I do this, sometimes I do that. And so I say, okay, in the next week, truly track what's happening between seven to nine. And so then patterns start to emerge as they do that with time. And we can pinpoint, okay, something triggered the activity of sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, right? Like, can we shift that and also to help people see that it doesn't have to go from and now I'm 100% effective all the time between seven to nine but that there's little there's days and there's moments and uh, ways to shift it gradually mm -hmm. I noticed for myself I'm trying to have a lot of fires in the pot and I always wonder like man how do people do this they have their home job they got a wife they got a kid they got all these other things a lot of times you hear somebody um, on these podcasts, you're like, oh my gosh, they're making it raw. And then you're like, oh, and then there was a struggle. Well, I was going through a divorce last year and I never see my kids. And you're like, well, that sounds like a horrible situation. And, yeah. and so what like I will spend, like if I have a couple of books to read and a couple of things to do, I like block out 20 minutes for this then switch it and switch it. So I'm always working a little bit on there. But because of, I mentioned the divorce thing. So are there ways of people can maximize their time with their family if they are trying to they want to start doing something else after hours but they have a family and kids how can somebody go about exploring that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so it's um setting boundaries clear boundaries about the time that you will spend on whatever that business venture might be or your side hustle uh so knowing that if you do want to lock yourself in your room with your laptop so that you have an hour to be able to think about it after work, that you don't just do it, but you're communicating with your family members about like, hey, I need this space to be able to spend an hour or, or whatever it might be. For a lot of families and uh, busy professionals, it's 15 minutes at a time, right? It's mm -hmm. not like, can I have 15 minutes to myself to like take some notes or think about this? Uh, perhaps it's on the way, the drive home, right? I'm sure that's when a lot of people are listening to this podcast and other podcasts. We're trying to better ourselves. Uh, so it's those little moments add up too. And sometimes we underestimate them of how they're getting us ready for 
uh, our side hustle venture. So boundaries for family members of, and knowing what you can set. And then also, I mean, a lot of people are using those morning hours before the family wakes up or before the kids wake up. And then uh, setting a routine that can get you there. Because if you're actually burning the candle on both ends, so to speak, of going to bed at midnight and you want to get up at 5 a.m., that's not enough sleep for most of us. So can you build your sleep routine around actually having energy in the morning to get up and not hit the snooze alarm, snooze button on your alarm? Uh, and then uh, some people are utilizing their lunch hours, right? Of like, can I, I know I need to eat during this time, but I also want to spend 15 minutes writing down my thoughts about this venture or working out the goals for that next step for figuring out my business. So, uh, and then I think eventually, like as you start to grow and especially even if you have some side money, being able to outsource quickly to kind of the th here are the things that I know I don't want to do and I don't have time for. So for a lot of people that's uh, website management or just putting up their first website, they don't have either the, well, the skills or they know that that's not what they want to do between 7 and 8 p.m. Like I could play with the kids or I could learn this whole new thing about webs, you know, a domain that I don't even know about. Uh, yeah. Or I could pay somebody, right? And I could pay somebody to fix this and get it going for me quickly. And then I'll feel like the momentum's, the ball is rolling. So uh, I think those are definitely strategies. But you mentioned those life crises. Like these are the moments when we start to realize like, oh, I do want to do something different. So mm -hmm. taking advantage of those is, can also be important. Okay. Would you say that it depends maybe on the age of your kids? on like if your kids are young you might be able to put them in bed by eight o'clock but yeah. if they're teenagers good luck they'll probably be up later than you are so you just have to make the choice to like go to bed nine o'clock or ten o'clock or whatever it is to get your seven hours of sleep i guess does that make sense yes definitely and okay you're right you wouldn't want to keep your teenager schedule but at the same time you have the advantage though that they want to uh they probably don't want to spend as much time with you in the evenings anyways right and they definitely <laughs> don't need you as much so the, you can go back and forth with the advantages of the lifespan. So that's one of the, uh, my main classes that I teach and having a PhD in human development is uh, thinking about things across the lifespan. So that's one of, that's one of my favorite topics. But yeah, well, as we change through the seasons of our lives, how can we build in our goals and think about what we're passionate about as we have the toddler, as we have the uh, middle schooler, as we have the teenager, so... The question on that, a follow-up then, when you're trying to have, you be a good dad, you're trying to be a good mom, but you also have the side hustle, is there a time, I'm thinking dinner table, but a way to kind of quote maximize the time that you do have with your family? Like you get one hour with daddy today, but I mean, is there a way to kind of do that to where you're very intentional, maybe at dinner? What What is your opinion on that? Yes. Yes. So that's uh... Uh, it's a funny way to phrase it, right? Maximizing your family time. But <laughs> I think absolutely a lot of families struggle with it. And uh, being able to be present is the most important thing of that you're not distracted by, you're not actually looking at your cell phone during dinner time when you're supposed to be talking to your kids or it's supposed to be, is it here in quotes here? But yeah. if that's the time you reserve to be able to talk to your kid about how their day went at the dinner table, but you're looking at your cell phone, you're completely distracted, 
right? And so that's not maximizing your time. Even though you think you are because you're waiting for that email from a client or whatever it might be, it's not. You're not not, fooling anybody. No. Your kids see that, oh, this is more important. Obviously, whatever's on the phone is more important. That's how they're going to pick up. Absolutely. And as as many of us, we listen to podcasts and read about businesses and being an entrepreneur and all of those things, there's actually a whole discipline of people who are writing about how to be a good parent too, right? Yeah. There are all these books and podcasts and resources for this is what we find. Uh, these are the ways you can ask kids questions to get r- real responses. What Can you get drop one of those on us? That sounds like a really interesting book right there. Yeah, uh, let's see. How to listen so kids will talk and listen. How to listen so kids will talk and talk so kids will listen. And that might be split. Oh, Amazon it. Yes, please Amazon it for us and add it to your show notes. Uh, I uh, That is a really like classic at this point. Then they've revised it and updated it. But it's amazing. You know, so many parents revert to the way we parent is how we were parented in a lot of ways. And we don't Mm -hmm. actively try to change it. But when we take the time to read something like that and or go to a parenting workshop or implement little steps like this, we learn, like, oh, okay, this can be different. I don't have to have a blowout fight with my teenager just because every TV show and society says that that's what you're supposed to do with your teenager or that's what I did with my parents, right? Like, mm-hmm. it can be different, but it does take work. And it uh, j- just like every domain of our life, it takes work to be able and discipline to um, make it better, so to speak, you know, uh, yeah. whatever that looks like for you. What's a, I mean, I'm curious, too. Your kid comes home from school. I know my mom would always say, how was your day? Did you learn something new? And you're like, yeah, mom, learn something new. Check you later. Is there a better way to ask that question? Yeah, and a lot of the strategies are in that book. Okay, Um, good. uh, Yeah, it's it's kind of like the that's too broad of a question. And in the book, they break down for each age. Like some older kids can answer that question if they want to a little more easily. But for younger children, it like might be too broad. And so... A lot of what they recommend is also creating the space for your kids to talk to you during moments that aren't the typical like walk in the door and now I'm going to talk to you. It's more like, okay, let's do this activity together that we both enjoy. And then what you find is that your child opens up to you and will just start to say stuff. Or maybe you're driving in the car and, you know, you're both singing the song, listening to the radio, whatever it might be. And they share something with you and you didn't even have to ask it. And so it's providing those kinds of opportunities too, rather than, okay, I'm going to try to ask you five questions right now about how your school day went so I can make sure I hit those bullet points. Right. <laughs> that doesn't usually work with kids. <laughs> and like I said earlier, being present with the kid, if they're talking, like listening to them, even if you're driving, wait, whoa, yeah. what did you just say? You know? Yeah. Uh, I've heard of something called um, play therapy where uh-huh. it, it, Justin's viewpoint was, at a certain age, I don't know what that is, maybe before like seven, maybe their kids went through a divorce, they're acting out, blah, blah, blah. And you play tea with them or you play with dolls and you just pretend, I guess, that the dolls are the dolls are asking the questions that you're actually trying to find out. And they actually be like, oh, I'll, I'll answer to the doll, but I'm not going to answer to you, mom. Is that right. is that what play therapy is or what? that's kind of like the typical view of play therapy and it can be one piece of it uh-huh. and let me clarify i'm not a clinician so i'm not a clinical psychologist i'm developmental and so it's subdomains within psychology 
clinical psychologists are trained and they went to school specifically to be able to work one-on-one -on -one with kids in those situations. Uh. And so some of my best friends, of course, are clinicians. Uh, is that the, the one approach that they take every time when they're working with kids? Usually not. Uh, and if you were going to work with kids, you specialize one in working with kids. And then if traumatic events happen to them, you specialize then in how do we help kids through traumatic events. And so it can look very different. Wow. And it's tailored to the kid. And uh, they have, you know, I don't even know all, all the training that they get for that, but it's very specific. Uh, but if you're trying to be a parent who's like sitting and playing with your kid, I mean, a lot of parents in general don't know how to play with kids. It's actually, it can be hard, right? You're like, uh, what boring. do I, I'm, I, yeah, it's boring, right? I'm actually really bad at this. It's funny that, uh, with PhD in human development, I've learned about it and like reading books to kids. I got that. They're shared reading and how you can effectively read books to kids, but playing dolls. I'm like, oh, this is, this could be painful. But again, people write about it and uh, give There's strategy. a way to read the kids? There's <laughs> a way to play with them effectively. There's a way to read the kids, right? Yeah, There's what's a, that? Effective ways to read the kids? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a whole field called shared reading. I have a friend who wrote a, his entire dissertation about it. Uh, but you can, you know, there's like strategies that instead of shared reading, shared reading, instead of sitting next to the kid and you're just like reading along and then you're flipping the pages, there's ways to make it more engaging. And so it's asking a lot of open ended questions while you're reading a book instead of a closed ended question. So closed ended would be, you know, like, do you see the dog on this page? And the kid can say yes or no to that. But Right. open-ended is like what else do you see on this page and what do you think about that and when's the last time you saw a palm tree and uh do, huh. do we know any dogs you know and then they're like yeah and like who can you think of that has a dog and it, it evokes these conversations rather than strictly i'm trying to read this book to you and we're trying to get to the end of the book maybe you don't even get to the end of the book that and that blows some people's minds right they're like but i'm I have to read these three books and then we're done for the I'll night. Never go to it's sleep. bedtime, right? So it's a it's definitely a balance, but it helps uh, with creativity and helps the conversations get started with kids that might go in a different direction. I read one time they and I don't know if what I was reading. It's been a long time, but I just liked it because it it validated my my bias of fathers are important in a kid's life. So <laughs> at least I'm aware of it. <laughs> but it was saying when dads read their books to their kids. They always, not always, but they tend to be more creative. Like the prince didn't kiss the bride. What? Yeah, he just didn't do it. Or he did something, they just make things up. And the kids are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how the story goes. I don't know if that's true or not. Right. So uh, there's definitely, like, it's more complicated than that, right? Would it be the easy answer? That, yeah. Uh, but there are definitely gender stereotypes and, like, patterns that we fall into because of society and how we were raised and the roles that we play. So it, it's also, you could also spend days, apparently years, researching the idea that uh, like these are the patterns that men fall into and that they tend to, they'll physically play more with their children compared to women, uh, compared to moms overall, right? And so there's all kinds of charts about the percentages and how that breaks down. So, uh, Definitely the importance of fathers, both mothers and fathers in children's lives. And not that you always have to have both, but it's uh, that you have adult role models in your life that uh, kids can turn to. 
is something we really emphasize in the, in the field overall in human development. So I've heard that's key though. Um, even if you don't have a dad for whatever reason, having a male figure, I mean, I just assume there's always a mom in, in play. It's just kind of, that's not always, but you know, things happen, but generally speaking, in my viewpoint, there's always like a mom involved and then the dad may be absent or whatever, but then you could still have father figures through boys club or a church or sure. however you find those male role models an uncle. I don't know. Absolutely. And, and, uh, whoever it might be, it's also having a community of support too, right? Outside of the mm-hmm. traditional nuclear family idea that you have aunts that help you as well. And maybe grandma's involved. And so we get these intergenerational bridges created rather than just, mm-hmm. uh, like, here's the mom and here's the dad. So yes, statistically, there are more moms, uh, single moms, than there are single fathers. But again, because I like to think about the groups that uh, are usually not thought about very often, for Mm -hmm. a couple of my research papers or interests over the years, a part of that was single dads, right? Of kind of like, here's this group that exists and feels so marginalized because they barely seem to exist. But there's there's thousands of them running around. Wow. Is there any tips for single fathers that you can think of? Oh, not, uh, not off the top of my head. I'd say okay. uh, it's been a while since I've done that research. It's definitely being able to find, this would be true for most groups, if you can find other people who are in your group, especially when it feels like TV and general society isn't talking about you. Knowing that there are other examples of you out there helps so many people. Um, And it's that feeling of me too. We all need the me too feeling. I saw Anne Mm. Lamott speak last week and, and she talks about this a lot. Like everybody needs to feel that somebody else is out there for them or like knows what they're going through. So me too means a lot, no matter if you're a single dad or a single mom or in a traditional nuclear family, like all of these people we need um, to connect with each other. That's interesting. I I um went to church with a, in a Colorado and it was a huge church, like maybe the third biggest church in, in America. Wow. And uh, one of their slogan is like me too. Yeah. Which is interesting that's a good one. Yeah. They're like, we're a bunch of hypocrites. Yep, me too. Me too. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, we all mess up. Yep, me too. So anyway, that's interesting. I don't know if they grabbed it from someone like that or, or what, but yeah. it's interesting to see that it crosses over into um, secular to religi- religionist, religionist things. I'll make up a new word for you <laughs> as well. There you go. Yeah, I'll have to look up that church. There's so many places are like that. And I bet your listeners will have even more examples of where they see this me too mentality. So I'd love to hear them. I'm a uh, love of learning is one of my strong suits. I lo- always love to learn new things. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> Email us. We want comments. We need feedback. We want to make this amazing. <laughs> By golly. All right. Uh, let's go back a little bit to more um, clients and you. If you could give, I don't know, two pieces of advice and it would just magically happen, what would it be? I know it's very broad, but... To clients? Oh, they're pieces of advice. Are you saying it's something that then they would magically absorb and then be able to run with it? Something like that? Yeah. Whether it's time management or goal setting or uh, getting out of their own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Things like that. It's usually the getting out of your own way. So one would be the confidence to do whatever it is you want to do. So many people get caught up in, I can't do this. And here are all the reasons why I can't do this and can't get past that. And for a lot of people, it's sometimes it's decades of 
the voice in their head and the training that they have. So if, if something could magically happen, if people had confidence, like what could we accomplish if we all had the confidence to do that next thing? Uh, absolutely. And then question. Yeah, go ahead. How do you gain the confidence? Get a coach, read a book. I mean, go to a counselor. Like, what do you what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think all those are good options. Uh, and and using multiple strategies rather than just one, right? So all do all okay. of those things, especially if you have time for them. Uh, but so part of it would come back to that me too conversation. So if you know that other people are struggling with what you're struggling with, and seeing how they've learned from it, and what can you do to either replicate or use those strategies in your own life. So part of this background in human development is knowing that there's basically no one who, who or there's always someone, let me rephrase that, there's always someone who's gone through what you're, you're going through and the feelings that you feel. So can you find them and learn from them? And for a lot of people, they need that one-on-one scaffolding, uh, the, the, right, of somebody to help bridge you up to the next step uh, side by side and can give you direct advice. But for a lot of us, we use books or we listen to podcasts and we say, okay, here's how I'm going to implement that in my life. And, and usually, right. Books can take longer, especially because you're not getting feedback from the book, so to speak. Um, there's cheaper, then they're a lot cheaper. That's right. There's a lot of good workbooks too. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, if you can put the time and money into, coaching one-on-one coaching is ideal because that person's able to talk uh, to give you feedback directly about your situation and to help scaffold you in that next way and of course finding that person that you feel comfortable with for some people it's they're dealing with past so many past issues that they need to see a therapist or a counselor first or at the same time i have several clients who are also seeing a therapist and they're working on, you know, past issues and other things. And we're working on the future and goal setting or time management. Kind of the, some, some of them describe it as, okay, you really help me with the nitty gritty. Because I can be like, uh, they can say, what am I going to do with the next hour of my day? And therapies like, takes a broader approach to that. So that's pretty cool, too, to see when people are working on it from different angles. Well, they got a negative soundtrack in their head somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, Something most, in life put it there. Yes. And how can we break that down? I'm actually reading a book right now, Emotional Agility by Susan David. Yeah, Susan David. She And she has a PhD, uh, maybe in psychology. But she talks about, it's called, or the subtitle is Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. And so this Get Unstuck piece, I'm really excited to see how she tackles that to be able to um, help people, you know, she's got in this book, any of your listeners could pick up this book and try to work on implementing getting unstuck in their own lives right now. I like it. Get unstuck. Writing that down. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And I cut you off. So did no. you have the second piece of advice? Besides uh, I confidence? I can't remember it now. Uh, for clients, if they, if something can magically happen, confidence. No, I don't remember where that was going, but. <laughs> Way to go, Justin. <laughs> That's good. I should have written it down. Yeah. That's okay. All right. I am curious. Where do you see the healthcare, your healthcare profession, the psychology, the human development? Where's that going in the next five years? Yeah. So psychology and healthcare, this idea that mental health professionals are helping people. I think we're going to see even more coaching, right? And mm-hmm. uh, 
personalized therapy and even being able to find a therapist online, uh, we can start to see that trend, but it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Actually, The Atlantic just ran a really interesting article about uh, using data to help therapists know if they're effective or not. If all of these other companies are collecting data on us and are learning more about us and we're willing to fill out information and type it into our phone quickly, can we also do that with with therapy and uh, with mm-hmm. co- well, and we do it with coaching anyways? But the that that will be very interesting in the next five years. And when thinking about this question, because I'm in higher education, also thinking about most importantly to me is where higher education is going and what are we doing with um, online uh, training? So how are people getting their training and will the four-year bachelor's degree evolve into more of a competency-based model? Like if you can demonstrate these competencies, then that's what your employer wants. Uh, I find that really fascinating. So there's that question of, like people looking to go into higher education right now, if somebody's 20 years old, for example, and they're like, oh, I think I want to be a professor. And I'm like, whoa, I don't know if you do actually. Like right now I'm in the mode of, I'm not like, yes, please embrace, come into academia with me. I think for a lot of people, we're kind of advising them to have multiple options because academia is changing quickly and it is so hard for people to get into right now. And even if you do get in, a lot of people are being underpaid and undervalued. Uh, We have a lot of adjunct professors of, you know, like teach this Mm -hmm. one class and don't get any health benefits and all of that. So those issues are also on my mind of like, what, how can I help with that in the next five years? Which is why I'm so excited to help graduate students in particular as they're navigating that and trying to get out of their programs quickly and, and take those next steps. So, Did, did you find that uh, the Bernie Sanders view on college is a everybody can go to college type of like for free? Is that a good thing in your opinion or? The typical answer here that it's more complicated than that. If we open... If everyone has free college, if you're able to go for four years, it gets complicated quickly because that turns into grades uh, 13 through 16. That adds on after grade 12. That becomes part of our public education system. Uh, And while that could have a lot of benefits, it's also important uh, from cognitive psychology, we know a lot about having a stake in the game. And so Mm -hmm. feeling like, okay, I'm doing this and I'm putting money into it. Not that you have to put $50,000 into it, but like you have some kind of stake in it and you're paying for it and you have to make this happen really changes the nature of what college is compared to what high school is. And so Mm -hmm. opening it up to like, and now it's free college really would be quite the shock to the system. So do I the general values of like more people need access and they, we want them to complete their degrees. Absolutely. Like, yes, we want people to finish their degrees. And and so I would say to Bernie Sanders kind of push back, like actually we have a lot of people going to college, but they're not staying. So how can we help with student retention would be, is even more important to me right now. Um, Put your money in policies and finishing school and not just starting. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot, uh, so many to, uh, are starting right now and and don't finish. So how can we help them as well? So yeah, it's like it's a more nuance of making something free isn't going to change 
everything for the positive like we think it would. It would be just a lot of other uh, consequences might happen as well. I've heard more women are graduating than men. Yes, there is that trend. And so we can see that on Horizon uh, that already we have more women completing bachelor's degree than men. And Mm -hmm. it's only going to increase. And so we're starting to see in elementary schools and middle schools, we are leaving boys behind, so to speak. And there's pushback on both ends from that of kind of like, wait a minute, we're just, we're trying to figure out, we still don't have equality in paychecks for women, right? Like, what do you mean leaving boys behind? I don't want to have that conversation yet. So I see, uh, I see people having the conversation on both ends of that of like, what do we do about this and how do we make it equal uh, for everybody? Uh, And what's really fascinating from a human development perspective is the idea that a lot of these young women are growing up still believing in the script that they will marry a man who will take care of them or they'll be able to take time off for maternity leave or they'll be able to stay home with their kids. Those kinds of scripts are still, you know, very much part of our United States culture. And so if they're the one that has the bachelor's degree, as they will be, uh, and they're the one that's making the money, how is that, how are those two going to clash with each other over time? Because they will be the one that needs to go back to work six weeks after uh, they have the baby. And what are we going to do about that? What kind of policies and uh, education systems will we put in place to help families? So it's good stuff. I always said if I married a sugar mama, I'd be uh, I'd be daddy, daddy at home, man. You make triple what I'm making. Okay, I'll just raise the kids. You go home, bring the bacon home. There you go. I'll be sure it's cooked yes. nicely for you. Yes. Now finding the the, we have the class difference there of somebody who's making three times as much as you are. We don't usually <laughs> tend to fall in love with people who are so far outside our socioeconomic status, but I'm uh, a catch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fish. No. Yeah, yeah. No, tell, tell your wife that you're on the uh, you're on the hunt. <laughs> oh, I think she knows. She she knows what she's got. No, I'm just kidding. She's like, yeah, we're gonna keep that ego down a bit. Um, I'm curious. I will since I mentioned something political. I, I'll ask you this. It's a big topic, but if you adjust for hours worked, I think that's one of those those catches in the women's pay gap. If you adjust for hours worked, then it's only like three cents off to a man. Mm. Any opinion on that? We can get, we can completely skip this question, but I'm curious when you adjust for those type of things, what the higher education says about that. Yeah. And there's so many good charts about this. So Bureau of Labor Statistics puts charts out, uh, U.S. Department of Ed, uh, Pew, Pew Research is a group mm-hmm. that puts together a lot of statistics related to this. So those are the big, right? Like that, that's who we want to pay attention to, who's putting out the national reports rather than USA Today ran a poll. <laughs> but yes, okay. So when we adjust, when we make those adjustments, there can be uh, equality. Like, okay, well, in these situations, men and women are making the same amount of money. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, we find, and, and it varies, but what we find that it depends also on the industry. Like are women entering this industry and are they staying in this industry? So when we find things like, okay, well maybe at the base entry level, women and men are making the same thing, but at the CEO level, there's no comparison. And actually it's really hard to run those numbers when only three, (laughs) there's only three women who are CEOs of this type of company, right? That Mm -hmm. that's, um, 
uh, doesn't have the gender equality. So what can we do to keep women and men like in these positions and why might they leave? So that's where a lot of the conversations are right now. Uh, and what groups are still getting, have a pay disparity. Some of the groups I also think about right now are groups that benefit from marriage. So like a childcare provider makes mm. minimum wage usually. And as we've already talked about, that's one of the hardest jobs in the world of being yeah. able to spend time with kids. Um, so they're making minimum wage. And yet that profession can get away with that a little bit because a lot of that, uh, a lot of those people are women and they're women mm. who will marry somebody who a man who will have a better paying job. And so it's kind of okay that she makes minimum wage in their family. And it'll be okay if she takes off time because she can go back to that childcare job. Uh, hairstylists are another one too. Like what are they making on tips and waitressing and these types of jobs that can, that are floating because of the other structures that are in place rather than can you actually support yourself as a childcare worker or as a hairstylist in this country completely on your own? Probably not. So that's also who I think about. Uh, I'm, and of course, I love to follow the work of Sheryl Sandberg, wrote Lean In, and that's been out for several years. But Tiffany Dufu just wrote a new book about uh, called Drop the Ball. And she uh, is, a, well, I want to say, CEO of some company, or she has run a lot of companies, and she's worked her way up into corporate America as an African-American woman uh, who's mm -hmm. married and has two or three children. And so she's also approaching it from that angle of like, okay, why are we also trying to do everything? And there's a lot of other books written about that, like the second shift. And as women have gone into the workplace, they are still doing as much at home, if not more at home compared to their spouses and all of those details. So yeah, Justin, you're opening a can of worms here. Like there's so many layers to it. Well, that, that's, that was kind of my point was they make it black and white and really it's kind of industry specific a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You got to look at what you're looking at. And, and I just wonder if they have to, if they need to have this conversation with their husband, like, Hey, I have to go to work. You got to do some more work at the house. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know how you don't have that, com how that conversation hasn't really been uh, flushed out enough to where they're picking up the slack, if, so to speak. If the woman used to do it and then she went back to work. And now she's still expected to do all that work. It's like, okay, well, why didn't, where's the conversation where the husband's like, okay, I'll do X, Y, and Z chores. You do these chores. And now it's a little bit more even. Yes. Which is why there's been the big push in the past couple of years for the emphasis on marriage meetings and taking the time to have these conversations with your spouse, because too often we let them happen in other conversations or we just let it fester or we build resentment and so the researchers that are really good at writing about how to talk to your spouse about this and other issues would be uh, the Gottmans, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. Yeah, I was about to say the five daily yeah, horsemen. Huh? Yeah, yeah, nice. You're, yeah, our um, horsemen, four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the, my favorite book to give t at weddings, <laughs> of course, I give, uh -oh. I give books, right? Uh, and <laughs> other presents. I mean, I buy things on their registry, but in with the card, I like to tuck in the seven principles that make marriages work. Because that's a there's a, that, that's in there the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then other ways to have these conversations with your spouse and like our millennial generation right now is trying to pave the way on that of how do we navigate these 
conversations? What do they look like? And what can people do on both ends to help it make it more productive? Can we just Snapchat each other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> you got 10 seconds. Go. <laughs> say everything you need to say. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't say you just had to send one. Just, you know, 10 oh, seconds. So you got to think it through. True. True. Make a story yeah. out of it. That's a good point. <laughs> there you go. I don't know how that works. We have to talk to somebody else on the show about Snapchat. I don't, I don't know much about that one. Yeah. I just, I just use it, but I don't, I, that's a good point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's switch gear. I want to, I want to uh, respect your time here. There's a lot of solo doctors. You know, it's a, it's a doctor podcast. We have our own clinics. Pretty much vacation is a high commodity for a lot of us. It's Christmas week and mandatory days like 4th of July and um, Thanksgiving, for instance. So we don't get a lot of time off. How can you do that? Do you have any any hints or tricks to where we can take more vacation or make the time off more um, relaxing and rejuvenating? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's this constant battle of, you know, you could be working. Like maybe you want to take that random week in uh, June but you're losing clients or the ability to see your clients during that time, right? Yeah, you spend money twice. Yes. And so if you are going to take it, absolutely how to make it worth it. So um, ways to make it, you know, knowing it's on the horizon. So you're, you've built this in, being able to warn clients and then also warn and like get, re- get yourself in the mindset of kind of like, okay, this is what's going to happen and being very clear about it. Like I'm, I'm only going to use my phone during these hours, or I'm actually not going to check email the entire time I'm gone, which would be quite the stretch for most uh, practitioners, right? <laughs> like if you mm-hmm. if you are on your uh, phone almost 24-7, right, in between clients and all of this, and then you're going to stay on vacation, like, I'm going to spend the whole day off. You actually might go through withdrawal. So build it <laughs> into more, what I see a lot of strategies, we do this in academia too, of like, uh, we struggle, or we'll be like, but I, I want to keep the momentum going. So can you say like from uh, 7 to 9 a.m., this is when I'll think about work, but then when 9 a.m. hits, I'm done and I'm ready for vacation. Uh, a lot of people don't get ready for vacation. They're trying to cram as much work as possible into right before vacation. But can't, do you also have the ability to give yourself a day ahead of time the, to, that like lets you get ready for everything and last you know the last minute packing and the things that need to be taken care of so that you don't spend the first two or three days of your week vacation just trying to decompress from everything you crammed in to the days leading up to it right so if you're like sitting on the mm-hmm. beach still completely stressed out about the days that you spent before that's that's not that's also not helping you then it really can feel like a waste of time and then on the other end I also recommend having a day at home to recover from vacation before you jump back into your practice or working with your clients uh, to protect your time on both ends can make the actual vacation even more productive. So maybe that means one less day at the beach for you and your family or wherever you're going, but it'll actually make the time spent that you did spend feel better, which can be pretty powerful. I mean, I can attest to that. I have to travel a lot with, uh, I just got back from Beijing and then I go to New Zealand next month and it is usually go, 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 go. And so when we're coming back, it's a 12 hour day. I mean, I got to get back to the airport, take a bus home. I mean, it's forever. And it is, it's like, then you start work the very next day and I'm always just like, oh, Justin needs a nap. I got to maximize my three hour lunch today <laughs> Why? with a nap. Right. Why did I do that <laughs> but, to myself? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when I get a chance to just go to a beach and relax, it's like, oh, this is nice. Mm-hmm. I still want to go tour, but at least you can chill. Yeah. Like I said, and you don't have to feel so pressured. Like I'm wasting time or I'm losing money by being at this dumb beach. Right. And if you, that goes back to tracking too, of like, if you know, like if you know that that's what happens on your traveling trips or vacations, write that down for the next time. Because sometimes we have such long breaks between vacations that we forget. It's like only when we're doing it again, we're like, I can't believe I'm making this mistake again of scheduling a client the very next thing, day that I get back. Uh, but if writing it down and then pulling back out those notes about, okay, here's how I felt the last time on vacation. And, oh, you know what? There is this pattern that I think I'm going to read five books for fun while I'm on vacation. And that's a little unrealistic. So maybe I need to at least scale, you know, if I just read two books, uh, that might be great, but it would depend on your own patterns and what you're up to. Well, so. that would be type A, like stressing yourself out. Like I said, I would read two books. I will finish <laughs> these two books. But that's how we that get kills it. Me. That's how we get it as practitioners, right? Of like, I'm going to try to maximize all of my time time while I'm on vacation and make it the most fun as possible. And then we end up stressing ourselves out even more. Yeah. 15 hour days are long on vacation. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go personal. Yeah. Dr. Caitlin, what preoccupies your mind besides work? You got any kids, hobbies, volunteers? Yeah. Obviously, I don't think you have a kid, but. I do not. <laughs> right. After I've, after I've talked, my students are always like, you study all of this. This is fascinating. Uh, we joke about sticky toddlers a lot. No, um, in my free time, so I'm married. Uh, my husband and I have two dogs, and we spend time with them. I've also been learning how to play the guitar. That's been fun. Uh, that love of learning, doing something new. Trying really hard. What's your I, song? Uh, I can only play three songs right now. So, uh, you know, eight, twinkle, day, twinkle. eight Days a Week by the Beatles is ingrained in my head right now. The mm. <laughs> One song at a time. They, But I'm really trying hard not to set goals around that because being this overachiever that I am, right, of uh, a lot of us are this way, like, okay, what what am I going to accomplish with this? And when I started running, I had the same thing, like, okay, I'm going to get to the next race. And that pretty much wore me out. So I'm just letting, like, mm. I play guitar, but I'm not trying to set a goal about it. So I've been embracing that with my hobbies. And then locally, I volunteer uh, for the library and for uh, scholarship committees and at our local nursing home, which is part of how I make sure I connect to people in other generations. Um, Painting the nails of 80-year-old women is so powerful, right? Because they have these life stories to tell you about things they, you can easily, you can ask anybody that's 80, you know, what do you wish you had known? What do you wish you knew when you were 30, when you were 40, when you were 50? And they will... They have those answers. Wow. They're so happy to tell somebody that's willing to listen. So, um, yeah, those are my – and I do a lot of crafts, too, uh, knitting and crochet and spinning yarn and all kinds of fun things like that. Oh, what's your favorite patterns? Like my mom does that stuff, the shawls or the little yep. bean caps or yep, baby, baby shoes. Socks. I like socks a lot. Uh, I'm kind of down mm. with sweaters, but – Oh, it's a long time. Yeah, it's too much time. I'd rather do socks or shawls, yeah, or scarf gifts for people. I do make a lot of baby blankets, obviously, the phase of life I'm in. So that's that's fun for people, too. You know, I found one with my grandma when she was alive. It was in the top of her closet. And I want to say she had made two or three before she quit because some of her, her grandkids didn't have kids yet. So I think I still have one. There's one waiting on me. If that time happens, there I was like, go. wow, what a cool legacy. Yeah, right? she got ahead of herself. That was productive. 
That is cool. Man. I think very regularly, I think these are the things that will outlive me, right? If we're all working on yeah. our legacy of what will still be here, that's going to be one of them. The quilts I've made or the blankets I've made, definitely. You know what's random? I'm going to share something else. I had all these shirts. You probably got a bunch from like running and like clubs you were in and all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. And you, you, half your closet is full of these t-shirts that are either like memorabilia or you're never going to wear again or ever would wear. Yeah. And uh, they turn it into a quilt for me. They, yeah, I was going to say, do you have the quilt? Yeah. I'm in the middle yeah, of one. Yeah, it's warm. Yes, definitely. You do it yourself? I've been trying to do it myself. At this point, I've been working on it for so many years. I wish I'd shipped it out, but it is going to get done one of these days. So You've got um, like a special big machine for that thing. Yeah, you do. Right. You do have to put it on the, the long arm quilty machine, definitely. <laughs> There you go. That's the name of it. Long arm quilting machine. <laughs> okay. So as, for, as far as for you and your spouse, taking it from a macro learning level to actually, how do you implement? What are some things that maybe you and your spouse do that keeps the love alive and you feel connected on a maybe a weekly basis? Yeah. So I've been trying hard on these meetings of like that we, if we have to talk about the day-to-day management stuff, in conversations that are separate from the conversations about, okay, so how are you feeling about your purpose in life? And what are you up to with, what do you think you want to do in the next couple of years? So keeping those conversations separate so that we don't transition from like, Hey, did you take out the trash? Did you put the trash out to, and what's, what do you want to do in the next five years? So like keeping it separate. So, because one can be, it can be such a like, Oh, I don't want to talk about this or, that's kind of a downer conversation to kind of like, okay, now we're, we'll open it up. So we've been balancing that and then spending that quality time with each other that doesn't involve, it's too easy to slip into let's watch TV after dinner. And so mm-hmm. and that's not truly quality time or truly getting to know each other. So avoiding that and then actively planning things that we do enjoy, like we like to camp. So do, did we make the time to put that on the calendar? Because if we don't, it, time, time will just slip by and it'll be like, yeah, that thing that we like to do camping, we just don't seem to do it anymore. No, we like put it on the calendar uh, and that makes a big difference for us. Yeah, we've been together um, tw- 12 years or so now. So it's also oh. fun to see. We've been married for three this summer. And so it's fun to see uh the, the evolution, right? And like kind of where we are now compared to where we were in the beginning and reflecting back on those times together. We're actually thinking about planning a trip to back where we met uh, in college to kind of like go back and revisit the physical location to kind of be like, oh, yeah, this feels so long ago now. Uh, and so taking the time to have moments like that of memories and nostalgia also helps us. That'll be fun, actually, I think. Yeah, I reckon try it. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> definitely my wife has english as a second language mm-hmm. and she she had this she goes justin we, we need to talk i was like we need to talk what <laughs> what's going on she's like i was like wait no we need to have this conversation now i need to know what to prepare for i'm freaking out and then she's like oh, wait what are you talking about it was a good conversation and I, I was like look you can't start a conversation with we need to have a talk later i was like that is universal yeah you're in trouble <laughs> we don't have time to hash it out right. so she learned that one and i was like oh man <laughs> don't say we need to talk absolutely we need to have a conversation later baby no 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 <laughs> all right funny. so do you have do you have a morning or a lunch routine that just grounds you or excites you for the rest of the day Mm-hmm. Um, morning. I have become more of a morning person over the years. And 
being able to spend time on morning pages, which is from the artist's way, uh, Julia Cameron, and being able to write those three pages and what whatever might come out comes out. Uh, so that grounds me and gets me centered on uh, like, what am I thinking about for the day? It helps clear a lot of the other things out. And even before that happens, actually, I find that most people are waking up and look, turning off the alarm on their cell phone, and then they start to check email, and they're letting that dictate their day. And what I try to do is not look at my cell phone for as much time as possible, like after my morning pages, after my coffee, after I feel like, okay, what is today going to look like? And then I can get, I can start to go into the email or start to get sucked into other people's priorities because... I, I mean, if you wake up and the first thing you're doing is responding or thinking about what somebody said the whole day, like what does your day look like? So that's been really key for me. Um, and I have that flexibility. Um, I know not everybody that they, they have to get little kids up and those kinds of things, but uh, being really purposeful and having that routine means a lot to me and, and making decisions the night before. So like what I'm going to eat for lunch the next day, uh, laying out my clothes for the day and the next, you know, the day, the night before, and so that there's none of this rushing around because I hate rushing around in the morning. So I've tried to actively make sure I'm calm and peaceful to start my day. I've actually heard us a little trick that nobody really talks about, but like having just your clothes ready, already ready to go ironed. One less thing to do in the morning. Well, it is, and it's decision fatigue. So that's a cognitive psychology thing. So as you make decisions throughout the day, right, that's part of why we get by the end of the day, we're just like, oh, I'm going to eat whatever, because we made all these tiny little decisions, hundreds of decisions throughout the day. And if we can eliminate any of them for ourselves, it makes, uh, we're much more effective mentally. So. Very nice. Now you've dropped a ton of books on us, so I'm going to be busy <laughs> with these show notes. Typical all the, all the other things she's mentioned, I will do my best to get them on, sh on the show notes. Okay. But any other books, apps on your phone, it could be a podcast. Anything that you're like, you know, this book is for the for you know this type of life, this part of stage, whatever you want to drop on the on the audience uh, for future reading that you feel is just mandatory. Yeah, besides all the ones I mentioned, like I I should carry the whole list of books that have changed. Well, actually, I guess I carry them on Goodreads. I'll I'll use that if if nobody's on Goodreads, right? It's where you can keep track of all the books you're reading and books you've read and get recommendations. Um, for me, my latest podcast I've really been enjoying is the Courage and Clarity podcast by Stephanie Crowder. It's for women entrepreneurs. And I and I wouldn't say that, I mean, most of your audience is going to fit into this group. And whether or not you're a woman, right, that's a, <laughs> it's like you could, you may still enjoy listening to it. The because she's always that kind of me too mentality. She always has people on there kind of talking about here was my journey and you can hear the similar threads in the journey. And so, she, yes, they'll give tips about like, hey, did you know that this is what you should be doing on social media now? Right. They'll be that part mm -hmm. of the podcast. But it's also like, here's how I got to where I am now. And, and ah. I and that's what you're doing on this podcast, too. Right. Of we're uh, learning from each other. Yeah. And so like li more examples like that, I'm on the hunt for. So I'll have to get your list too and uh, keep spreading yeah. the word about the other, what we're listening to. Uh, where, <laughs> where can people get more information about you? <laughs> yeah. So on all the social media platforms, I'm at Dr. Caitlin Foss. So that's D-R-C-A-I-T-L-I-N-F-A-A-S. Uh, and then drcaitlinfoss.com too. 
And so please uh, reach out and send me an email. Let me know if you heard me on the podcast, right? We have Justin in common. So let's keep building our networks and get to know each other. Absolutely. Any final comments before we go? No, thanks so much again, Justin. I'm so grateful you're doing this and helping spread the word so that everybody can get to know each other. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll definitely uh, talk again another day. Dr. Caitlin, I love that me too mindset, regardless of the circumstances. People are either struggling like you're struggling or they're succeeding like you're succeeding. And we just got to find them. And it's not that hard to do, especially with a computer. Thank you so much for the tips and the resources. As always, all the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash two three. Stay tuned. The travel tip is coming up next. And as always, learn as much as you can from today's guest. A big thank you to everybody who purchased the book. For those who are considering it, a doctorsperspective.net slash free ebook. You can get yourself a PDF version for free. If you watch the video, fantastic. You'll see the different reasons why you should read the book. We've got things from helping with headaches, stretches, and exercises that you'll actually do. Ways to figure out food labels. What's the deal with sugar. Tricks for portion control. And a nice chunk of the book, how can your body heal itself? Are you minimizing? Why are some people negative about chiropractic? What does it actually do? What is pain? What is a misalignment or a subluxation? You can go on Amazon. They got the Kindle version, paperback book. As always, there's merchandise at the resources tab. There's podcast t-shirts, chiropractic t-shirts, mugs, whether it's getting a cup of coffee. All the stuff is high quality, good ink job. If you like what we're doing, giving back a little bit, keep the show going. Definitely not necessary, but of course it's appreciated. If you head over to the website, the top right is all the social media flavors. Pick what you like. Friend us, of course, active on Instagram and Facebook the most and trying to do more live videos, trying to keep everything fresh. The pictures of my travels are typically on both of those. Big rush on Facebook, slow drip on Instagram, of course. If you want to leave a comment, definitely do that. It helps us to know how to improve the podcast so that you guys like it better. And of course, if you leave a review on iTunes or your Android app, that's very appreciative. If you want, screenshot it, boom, throw it up on Facebook, tag me, and I'll give you a shout out. Travel tip this week, buy souvenirs if they fit in your luggage. You know, I like to travel, just carry on even when I move overseas. That way I have less to less to lose. You know, if you lose your bag, that's always a horrible and you only go on for like a few days to begin with. But uh, so I just carry on and I learned how to pack really nicely. But if you're going to buy a souvenir, make sure you can actually take it. You know, you got size restrictions and fluids. Uh, you can't bring swords and knives. You know, you can't do all that kind of stuff if you carry on. So if you're like me and you want to just carry on, you got to be careful what you get. The weight's not as much of an issue. But at the same token, if you are someone who's going to carry a bag, which is like most people, you still got to think about these things. Uh, I did check fencing gear, you know, like the Olympic fencing. So it's definitely doable when you check it, That you know, but... Um, just be aware of what it is. That way you don't get confiscated. You know, you got to be careful too. Some places they say, hey, you bought DVDs or something and you can't carry those over because they're, you know, maybe they were bootlegged or something. So just be aware. Uh, buy your souvenirs. Just make sure that you are able to pass customs and that they'll fit in your luggage. We just went hashtag behind the curtain and this episode has come to an end. I hope you got the right dose for your optimal life. Please spread the word about this podcast by telling two friends, sharing on social media, and visit the show notes on a doctorsperspective.net 
to see all the references from today's guest. A sincere thank you in advance. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.